0: Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. My name is Phil Harland, a professor at York University in Toronto. We continue now with the series Diversity in Early Christianity and we're moving on to some other Nag Hammadi documents, some other documents traditionally labeled Gnostic. Today we deal with the Gospel of Philip. You may know of the Gospel of Philip from its recent use in movies, namely The Da Vinci Code which draws on the Gospel of Philip's obscure reference to something to do with Mary Magdalene, Jesus, and a kiss, and builds that into the whole scenario of Jesus having Mary Magdalene as a sexual partner. We'll deal briefly with that in this episode. However, what we'll be concentrating on is what the Gospel of Philip is really about. We will deal with the Gospel of Philip in two episodes. In this first episode, I introduce some main issues regarding date, what type of writing it is, and then delve into the worldview of the Gospel of Philip, which has some affinities with the worldview, with some of the other Nag Hammadi documents we've looked at. But we'll be delving more fully into the details of how this author understands what salvation is. The second episode on the Gospel of Philip focuses attention on what is perhaps the most important thing about the Gospel of Philip. Namely, that it gives us a picture of practices, of rituals practiced by a particular group of Christians. In fact, some scholars have suggested that the Gospel of Philip itself is a manual for initiation, a manual to prepare and teach those who are being initiated and being baptized into this particular form of Christianity. And so that second episode tries to explain what we know about the rituals of this particular Christian group and what that tells us about their worldview and the way in which worldview interacts with ritual, beliefs interact with practices. Rarely do we get this glimpse of actual practices that were taking place within Christian groups behind the Nagamati documents. If you'd like to read more about the Gospel of Philip from a scholarly perspective, I'd highly recommend a dissertation, a book, that is available online and is freely accessible at the moment at least. At the University of Groningen site, there is the dissertation by Lubertus Klaas van His dissertation is titled Baptism in the Bridal Chamber, The Gospel of Philip as a Valentinian Baptismal Instruction. That work, which has partially informed my discussion in these episodes, is a place to look if you want to understand the rituals and practices more fully, and it also provides an overall introduction to the Gospel of Philip in the process. I hope you enjoy this episode. Once again, you will be better off reading the Gospel of Philip before you listen to the podcast. I hope you come again. Of the writings we've been looking at, the Gospel of Philip actually is among the ones that is recognized in popular culture a little bit because it's quoted in the Da Vinci Code. And the thing that's central to the plot of the Da Vinci Code, or at least an important part of the plot, is this idea of Jesus having, as a sexual partner, Mary Magdalene. So it's in the Da Vinci Code that they quote from page 63, lines 32 and following. And the companion of the blank space, Mary Magdalene, blank space loved her more than all the disciples and used to kiss her often on her blank space fill in the blank the rest of the disciples they said to him why do you love her more than all of us the savior answered and said to them why do i not love you like her when a blind man and one who sees are both together in darkness they are no different from one another when the light comes then he who will see the light and he who is blind will remain in darkness in other words, it's talking about the fact that Mary Magdalene is seeing the light more than others are, and that this is somehow a favorite of Jesus. But it's uh, obviously the blank spaces let you make up what you want for what's going on here, and then this, together with some other specific interpretations of sayings in other apocryphal gospels, are used to develop this notion of Jesus being married to Mary Magdalene or that they were lovers and that sort of thing. We'll talk later, though, about this idea of the the holy kiss within early Christianity, which is important beyond Gnostic literature. Uh, We have this idea of kissing being the way in which fellow members of Jesus' groups greeted one another. So not quite as exciting as it's made out to be in the Da Vinci Code, but there's plenty here to find that's interesting nonetheless. The Gospel of Philip dates most likely to the early 3rd century, so the early 200s CE. Some scholars suggest it comes from Syria, partly because of the interest in the manuscript itself in Syrian terms. Syrian terminology is uh, referred to and taken for granted in some of the things that are discussed uh, here and there in the Gospel of Philip. In terms of genre, this is an odd document. It's called the Gospel of Philip. Philip is one of the characters when there's a saying of Jesus in the uh, document itself, and that's probably the basis on which it was called the Gospel of Philip. However, in terms of genre, it's not a gospel. It's not the story of the life of Jesus. Yet it doesn't focus much on the sayings of Jesus. However, it has some. Uh, so that's typical of a gospel. In other words, when you have a narrative telling the story of Jesus, quite frequently you'll have sayings of Jesus interspersed within the narrative. So that's what comes closest to what you could call a gospel genre in the Gospel of Philip. However, it is not a gospel. Scholars have debated what it is. Part of the problem is it's so scrambled in terms of themes and so scrambled in terms of topics that are covered that scholars have difficulty even making sense of what structure is here. There's no clear progression in the content. And in fact what has been suggested is it's a collection of all kinds of sayings and teachings that have been pulled together as a manual perhaps for someone to use to teach someone who's being initiated. Fanos, the scholar who's most recently done a dissertation on the Gospel of Philip, argues strongly that it is a baptismal instruction manual and that it's a collection of notes in order to use those notes, for a teacher to use those notes in someone being baptized and going through the rituals that we're going to discuss extensively today. But that's one of the most interesting things about the Gospel of Philip. It extensively discusses rituals none of the other documents we're going to look at in the Nag Hammadi documents, none of the other Gnostic writings, so so to speak, concentrate so much on practices and on rituals. The Gospel of Philip is our best source for an example of a particular type of Christianity and the rituals they engage in, a type of Christianity that is interested in Gnosis and knowledge like some of these other Nag Hammadi documents and that has traditionally been called Gnosticism. In terms of the content, many scholars who study the Gospel of Philip suggest that if you're going to categorize it, it comes closest in some respects to Valentinian forms of Gnosis, Valentinian forms of Christianity. And so we might have some actual teachings in Valentinus here. Having said that this document uh, relates to Valentinus, let me say a couple things about Valentinus just so you have a little bit of background. Valentinus was a thinker in Alexandria and Egypt who we first hear about, as usual, from people who don't like him, from church fathers who are attacking him and dislike his ideas. It seems that he was most active, contemporary in Rome with Marcion. So it's in the 140 CE that Valentinus seems to have been in Rome as well. He must have encountered in Egypt, before going to Rome, similar sort of ideas that we find in the Nag Hammadi documents, ideas about the fact that the world that we live in, the material world, is created by a God other than the God who sent Jesus. We also know from looking at attacks on Valentinus's thought that he developed the idea of one perfect being emanating and multiple beings resulting in a perfect spiritual realm. And that those emanations resulted in one Akamot, wisdom, who made a mistake. And that the world came into being through the mistake. So we know that through Irenaeus' attack of Valentinus. One other thing we know about his ideas from the attacks, Valentinus had a more developed notion of dividing up humans into categories. And he divided them into three categories. The material, the helix, that will never be saved. Then there's the ensouled beings, the psychic. Remember, psuche is the Greek word for and the Coptic word for soul. So there's the psychic or soul ensouled beings who have the potential to be saved. Thirdly, there are the pneumatikoi, the spiritual ones, whose ultimate destination is salvation and rejoining the perfect spiritual realm. So that's just a little bit of background on Valentinus because of the scattered nature of the writing itself it's hard to piece together the worldview. It's hard to piece together what does the author or collector who collected together the Gospel of Philip, what does that author think about the world? And in fact we can't assume that every piece of material the author is using he has coherently decided he agrees fully with that worldview and that's coherent with his own worldview and that each of the different pieces of information he's pulling together are all consistent or something. We can't even assume that. But what we do get, because of the scattered nature of the document, is scattered sort of allusions to the mythology and scattered allusions to the worldview, some of which you're familiar with already. In other words, some of which will line up with elements of what we read in the Sophia of Jesus Christ elements that we read in the Apocryphon of John, but let's at least note some of these hints of the mythology, some of which may be Valentinian, as I mentioned before. First of all, you have terms that are referred to that we're familiar with. The fullness, the pleroma. We already know quite a bit about that from more systematic statements of worldview, like in the Apocryphon of John, where the author is systematically outlining in a narrative form almost sequentially what he thinks about the origins of the world and all that. But here there's none of that there's no systematic sequential description of the mythology instead we have just terms that we get alluded to like the fullness another term that pops up that lines up especially well with valentinus and valentinian forms of christianity is ekamot ekamot is a aramaic way of saying wisdom and it parallels sophia in other words sophia is the greek way of saying wisdom an ekamot, or akamot, it's sometimes spelt with an A at the beginning, um, is just a, a Semitic way, uh, from Semitic languages, of saying wisdom. And this, we know, is characteristic as a term that is used within some Valentinian writings. The author who's using this may, indeed, hold the larger mythology associated with akamot. Namely that Akamot, Sophia, is one among the emanations from the one perfect being and that that one emanation was the one who was at fault for what ultimately resulted in the creation of the material realm and in the creation of the Creator God. There's other little hints that confirm that that picture of Akamot or Sophia who ultimately resulted in a mistake come up in some other phrasings. One to mention right now is this phrase in Page 75 of the manuscript, the world came about through a mistake. Let's talk about the human condition in the Gospel of Philip. So I want to talk about these three things. The human condition as it's explained in the Gospel of Philip. Salvation and the Savior in the Gospel of Philip. And then we'll go on to the whole question of rituals, uh, which are the more, most important thing about the Gospel of Philip in a way. So let's go th- through these here. First about the human condition. The Gospel of Philip has several different paragraphs and some terminology that indicates how the author of the materials that are gathered together thought of humans and thought of categories of humans. What we don't have is that threefold structure very clear. We don't have the Valentinian threefold structure. What we do have is at least a division into two in some of the material. And the two divisions in the terminology that is used, for example, Are animals and slaves, on the one hand, and free children and those who belong above, on the other hand. Animals and slaves are the material people, is the way you can parallel it. The ones who aren't spiritual, who won't return and ascend to become one with the spiritual realm. Obviously, those who are free is the terminology that's used. Free children, they belong above, is the terminology that's used sometimes. And you can see that in pages 78 to 81 of the manuscript when you go back to it. There's a variety of ways that he talks about humans and their status. And this is another one. He talks about Adam and Eve. And when he talks about Adam and Eve, he reveals what he thinks about humanity in the current conditions. So let's look at page 68 in the manuscript, lines 20 to 25, where we have this one sentence that tells you a whole lot, even though it's just one sentence. This will be a clue to you of what salvation is as well. Take a look at this. When Eve was still in Adam, death did not exist. When she was separated from him, death came into being. If he enters again and attains his former self, death will be no more. There's a lot packed into that one sentence here. There's a concept here of androgyny. We've talked about androgyny to some degree in that Nagamati authors quite often conceive of the emanations in the spiritual realm as androgynous. They talk about them in an androgynous manner. Well, here within this little passage here, and another one I'm going to point to, we have in this material reflected the ideal of androgyny reflected. The idea of returning to androgyny as the equivalent of salvation the separation of male and female as part of the mistake, as part of the fall, as part of what's wrong with humanity. There's the ultimate salvation we'll soon see is for Adam and Eve to return to being one again. Sexual imagery we're going to soon see is very important, sexual metaphors, not literal sex, but sexual metaphors. Very important in the Gospel of Philip and in in the Gospel of Philip's whole notion of what salvation is, sex is central. Sexual metaphors. Look across the page for a little bit more of the same language of what we just saw there. Page 70 of the manuscript. If the woman had not separated from the man, she should not die with the man. His separation became the beginning of death. And then it goes on to how Christ repairs that. We're going to talk about salvation soon enough. A couple more things to mention about the way that human condition is expressed in the Gospel of Philip. We have a little phrase in page 56 in the manuscript talking about the distinction between the precious soul and the contemptible body. So you have very clear statements that are negative about the body. There's also this phrase in page 82 of the manuscript relating to views of the flesh as well this phrase, it is proper to destroy the flesh. So that's another analogy that is used by this author to speak of, first of all, the negativity towards the body, but to speak of salvation as the process of destroying the flesh, contrasting the spiritual from the material. So that's the human condition for the Gospel of Philip. We're in a fractured state, We're in a separated state. We're separated from our ability to be one with the spiritual realm. And it's expressed in gender terms that our male is separated from our female. Salvation, we're soon going to see, and the rituals that are expressed in the Gospel of Philip are all about how that is rectified. They're about the male returning to be one with the female. And soon we'll see that the male is the spiritual spark in the soul, and that the female is your angelic counterpart. And It's through gaining knowledge that you rejoin, that the male rejoins the female, and salvation is gained. Let's get into it a little bit more, first of all talking about salvation and the Savior in terms of the worldview, and then we'll fully get into the practices and rituals that enact salvation. Let's look at a few things about salvation. First of all, the persona of Jesus comes up in the Gospel of Philip. The term Christ comes up in the Gospel of Philip and they are used interchangeably, it seems. Some Nag Hammadi documents tend towards the use of the word Christ and distinguish Christ from Jesus, don't they? The Gospel of Philip also uses the term the perfect man and apparently identifies the perfect man with the Savior, with Christ. Humanity is sometimes also divided up into the sons of Adam and the sons of the perfect man. The followers of Jesus are the sons of the perfect man, the followers of Jesus who have gained the secret knowledge. Page 58 of the manuscript, lines 20 and following. The heavenly man has many more sons than the earthly man. If the sons of Adam are many, although they die, how much more the sons of the perfect man? They who do not die, but are always begotten. There's other times, though, where it sounds perfect man is used in the plural, perfect man. And it sounds like anyone who achieves knowledge could be called perfect man as well. In terms of how Jesus himself, the perfect man, is viewed, there's a couple of places that indicate a docetic view. You guys have learned a lot about docetism back when we dealt with Ignatius. Remember how Ignatius talked about other followers of Jesus in Asia Minor? These other followers of Jesus said that it only seemed that Jesus was human and that scholars developed the term docetism from the Greek word doceo, to seem, to refer to these types of followers of Jesus who believed Jesus was never truly human. He only seemed to be human. In the Gospel of Philip, we have hints of docetism in this sense. A couple of places. It's not unexpected within the Nakamati documents, is it? I mean, it's quite typical. Take a look at page 57 of the manuscript. Jesus took them all by stealth, for he did not appear as he was, but in the manner in which they would be able to see him. He appeared to them all. He appeared to the great as great. He appeared to the smallest, small. He appeared to the angels as an angel and to man as a man. He appears to be all kinds of things. But the things he appears to be in this author's thinking are not what Jesus is. That Jesus only appeared to be human. He never really was human. We somewhat expect that now, though. of the the Nag Hammadi documents. And we saw it in Marcion's form of Christianity as well. Let's look at Christ's role, which is really the central point of the whole thing. So Christ, as Savior and as the perfect man, has a role to play. And his role is to redeem the sons of the perfect man, to ransom those who possess a piece of the spiritual realm so that they can return above. And this is expressed in a variety of ways. Let's take a look at the role of Jesus in this page uh, 53 of the manuscript. Christ came to ransom some, to save others, to redeem others. He ransomed, paid off the debt, ransomed those who were strangers and made them his own. And he set his own apart, those whom he gave as a pledge, according to his plan. It was not only when he appeared that he voluntarily laid down his life, but he voluntarily laid down his life from the very day the world came into being. This is interesting. They have this notion of Christ laying down his life as a metaphor for something, and that Christ had already laid down his life beyond this idea of the crucifixion. It's actually his laying down of his life in the Gospel of Philip is something other than the crucifixion, understandably in connection with the docetism we've just seen. Remember, the docetic thinkers would tend to downplay the human experiences of Jesus, including the crucifixion. Christ, the spiritual being that seemed to be Jesus, would have left before the very human experience of Jesus dying. Remember that whole idea? And so this seems to be reflected in this development of another notion of Jesus dying, that it's something he did in a metaphorical sense before he even showed up. The laying down of life is a metaphor here for the ransoming activity of Jesus. Let's look further at this same passage here. Then he came first in order to take it, since it had been given as a pledge. We're getting filled in here now what the ransom involves, even though it's obscure. Who is being paid off? A ransom involves paying someone what is due so that someone is set free from slavery or set free from their debt. Look at this next phrase here. It fell into the hands of robbers and was taken captive, but he saved it. He redeemed the good people in the world as well as the evil. This idea of the ransom involving gaining back from the robbers, something they obviously had stolen, is alluding to a mythology we're familiar with from the Apocryphon of John and the Sophia of Jesus Christ. Namely, the idea of the rulers of this world who were involved in the creation of this world being known as robbers, who have stolen something from the spiritual realm and trapped it, enslaved it, imprisoned it within the material realm that they created. So, this is not explained to us here, it's just alluded to. And because you're familiar with some of that similar mythology, you can start to make sense of how this author thinks from that. Take a look across the page, page 54 of the manuscript. The archons, the rulers, wanted to deceive man since they saw that he had a kinship with those that are truly good. They took the name of those that are good and gave it to those that are not good, so that through the names they might deceive him and bind them to those that are not good. Spiritual things being bound to material things is the way I'm interpreting this talk here. And that the rulers have done that and enslaved something that needs to be set free to return to the spiritual realm. Here we're seeing Christ's role in setting free the slaves in that metaphor. The ransom, the paying off that sets the slaves free. And the payment is made to the robbers, it seems, in the mentality of what's alluded to here. It's never explained fully, but what we have come across in the Apocryphon of John as part of the worldview and mythology of that author that seems to be perhaps shared by this author is the idea of the rulers recognizing in humanity something better than them, being upset about it, and going out of their way to entrap it. The rulers, the robbers, recognize there's something good about these humans. They don't know quite what it is, but they want to get it, they want to entrap it, they want to keep it. And that's the sort of picture we have here in the Gospel of Philip. The enslavement metaphor that the robbers, creators of the material realm, are those who enslave the elements from the spiritual realm. And it's Christ's role to come and pay a ransom, in the language here, to set free the slaves so that those with the spiritual element in them can return above. Look at the paragraph that is before Christ. Before Christ came, there was no bread in the world, just as paradise, the place where Adam was, had many trees to nourish the animals, but no wheat to sustain man. Man used to feed like the animals, but when Christ came, the perfect man, there's an identification of Christ with the perfect man, he brought bread from heaven in order that man might be nourished with the food of man. The rulers, here they are again, thought that it was by their own power and will that they were doing what they did. But the Holy Spirit in secret was accomplishing everything through them as it wished, Truth which existed since the beginning is sown everywhere, and many see it being sown, but few are they who see it being reaped. There's more of this allusion to the mythology we're familiar with from the Apocryphon of John again. Not necessarily identical, but there are some commonalities, is what we're saying, between the type of Christianity reflected in this author and what we saw in the Apocryphon of John. The notion that the rulers thought that they had power to do things and that they were accomplishing things, when in fact they were really ignorant. And secretly, the spiritual realm had a plan to rectify the mistake. Let's look at a couple passages about Gnosis, about knowledge. Page 76 of the manuscript. Is it not necessary for all those who possess everything to know themselves? Some indeed, if they do know themselves, will not enjoy what they possess but those who have come to know themselves will enjoy their possessions. This idea of knowing yourself, namely knowing what it is you are, that you're enslaved within a material realm, and that you, if you're a pneumaticoi, if you're a spiritual one, that you have a spark within you. And knowing that is the process of salvation as well. The process of knowing is the process of salvation in the same way that it was in the Apocryphon of John and in some of the other Nag Hammadi documents we've looked at. So there's similarities there in the idea of knowing oneself as the means towards salvation and knowing this whole mythological scenario that we only get allusions to as the means to salvation, knowing that, knowing the condition of humanity, knowing that the robbers have enslaved humanity, knowing that Christ is the perfect man who has come to set humanity free. Knowledge of this whole thing is what leads to knowledge of oneself and salvation. So Gnosis is a very important concept, understandably, in the Gospel of Philip. Finally, the Gospel of Philip repeatedly comes back to actual concrete practices and rituals. This is one of the few times where an author of the Nag Hammadi writings actually talks about what the Christians who believe this mythology do when they engage in rituals. What practices they have. And so when we come back from the break, we'll see that these practices and these rituals are integrated fully within the worldview we've just been outlining. They are partly an enactment of salvation itself. The rituals and practices that are talked about, including the bridal chambers, is the process of salvation as it's metaphorically acted out in rituals within the community who uses the Gospel of Philip. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharland.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music for this podcast is Shadow Dance by Cave, and it's used here with permission under a Creative Commons license.